Welcome to Packet Pushes, the greatest data networking podcast in the world. Well, at least we think so. Today, I'm recording a special show with Anil Lakani. Now, one of the things about Anil and myself is we've been knocking around the industry for a very long time. I get to see the industry from the point of view as a uh, you know blogger, podcaster, somebody who lives outside of the Silicon Valley bubble, somebody who looks at you know, the ouvre that gets forced out to us from the marketers and the announcements and so forth. And I sort of have to filter through that to find the little pearl in the middle of the puddle of, of sewerage. On the other hand, Anil has a career working on the marketing side and creating the sewerage for where I'm looking for pearls. And uh, so what I thought we would do today is that Anil has recently become a free agent and we get together to talk about, well, life in business, life in startups. Welcome to the show, Anil. Thank you very much. There could be no better description of what I do. <laughs> So, I just, as I'm feeling it today. I've just been wading through my inbox. Uh, just recently, uh, I was placed onto some mailing lists that journalists get, and yes. I've been receiving a uh, a flood of press releases. I, uh, I hereby promise to send less sewage to you on a regular basis. <laughs> it's just these press releases are like, did somebody actually take time to write that? Like seriously. That's how I feel about most of them as well, actually. For that. So what we wanted to talk about today was uh, loosely sort of the concept of life in a startup or life in the in the industry. And you've got some fairly close relationships or some experiences around that. So why don't we start off telling a little bit about your, you know, the last year or so where you're at, and then let's get into the discussion. Sure. So um, my background, uh, I was at a startup a very long time ago. Then I was at very large companies like IBM and Cisco. I had a brief stint as an analyst at Gartner, and in the last four to five years, I've been at startups, again, generally in marketing positions for very technical or technology-heavy companies, because I have a background as an engineer. Mm -hmm. And I've met you through, well, various different places, I think. I mean, mostly we did a show, what, a year or two ago with What's Life Like as an Analyst, which I think was very well received and it was good fun. Yeah, and I believe we, we originally encountered each other when I worked at Cisco a number of years back. That must have been great. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was, it was certainly entertaining. Okay. It's very difficult for me to think back so far. So much has happened at Packet Pushes in the last you know, three or four years. I actually can hardly remember going back five or six years these days. So let's kick off the discussion around life in the startups. Uh, one of the things is I know that a lot of our audience, are, you know, they're very career-centric, and, and I think some people have this dream that startups are going to be amazing. If only I could work at a startup. <laughs> and m- my view is is that uh, you're likely to be successful in a startup about as, as, uh, on about the same probabilities that if you buy a lottery ticket. And, yeah, uh, a bit, so, I see that's fair. And sort of suggesting to people that it's actually not all glamorous. It's actually, you're more likely to fail than succeed. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. So it's it's not at all glamorous. So it can be glamorous for a handful of people. Usually those people are the founders of the startup. And most startups fail. But, you know, there is no uh, incentive for the industry to to make those startups be the ones that everyone hears about and that are front and center. And very few startups succeed and very few people within startups succeed aside from founders when they succeed. And generally the work is not glamorous. It is a slog. It is, Mm. there's so much manual labor involved in startups because so much of the work, especially if you, if you do the kind of work, which I do, which is generally very, very early stage companies that are at prototype or alpha stage, Mm. it's, it's basically because you don't know what's going to work, because you have an idea and a product and a theory and you're testing out a bunch of hypotheses about the world, you can't automate that. What you're doing for the most part is building something, seeing what happens, calling it something, seeing what happens, saying 
to people that this is this kind of thing versus that kind of thing, seeing what happens and rinsing and repeating over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again until something sticks that people are willing to give you money for, which is almost never self-evident and almost never the thing you set out to do in the first place. Yeah, we talk about startups pivoting. And uh, so there's one uh, I've been following for a while. It's called Corville. And it originally started off as a Quas appliance in networking. And then yep. it became a deep packet inspection appliance yep. for carriers so they could see what was in the network. And then it became a deep packet inspection traffic shaping device for carriers. Uh, and I think it's been through two or three more pivots. But today it's a DDoS appliance. That's right. The same box underneath, but it keeps pivoting as the market changes. And it, it, you know, becoming a bigger and bigger company. But in, in infrastructure, it's it's certainly something is that however you start out is not necessarily how you'll end up. Not at all. And frequently, what happens is, so so like Coral, for instance, you know, perhaps they built a great initial product to solve that initial problem, and a couple of things might have happened. They start having traction with that problem, and either they run out of customers. Or they run into headwinds because someone else is doing it better than they are, or a bigger competitor just buys the business and takes a loss and maintains their mm. you know their hold on the accounts for that pro- for that space. Mm. And then you at some point you have no choice because you need to continue generating additional revenue to grow, which means you need to sell either either sell more of the same product to a wider number of people or sell different products to the same people you already have. Mm. So in, it's inevitable that either you pivot or you have additional product lines. Yeah, and this is sometimes this is a topic I wanted to talk to you about, which is called the land and expand versus the grow the market type of thing. Maybe we'll make a note to make sure we talk about that later on. Um, so startups, yeah, I mean, the flip side of that too is that there are startups that don't do that. So if I look at companies like Vitella, for example, they came to the market with an SD-WAN product and within three years, they're a billion dollar company, five years without, sorry, three, five, five years from startup, three years in the market, they're a billion dollar company. So it is possible to hit the market oh, and yeah. get it right the first time. Yeah, but th- but their thesis was right, and and I, I guarantee you, despite any myth spun around that fact, mm. that they didn't know that coming out of the gate. No, they hoped for it though. Uh, right. So you know, sometimes this comes down to, I mean, there's different types of startups. This was something we were talking about just ahead of the thing. Is that there are different types of startups, and the number of startups that fail in the infrastructure space is phenomenal. Like ninety percent, maybe ninety nine percent. I don't know. Um, and in the consumer space, it's much higher. I have this rough theory. I have no no numbers here, but I believe that in the infrastructure space, you know, nine out of ten infrastructure startups will fail completely. They'll just disappear without a trace. Just ripples left in the surface of the of the market. You know, uh, maybe some of them would be. Maybe some of that nine would be acquired by a big company who just gobbles them up and takes the headcounts in as an acquisition, like to hire those people as part of a buyout. Or maybe some of that technology gets folded into somewhere else and then just disappears. Maybe one in 10 gets away. But in consumer space, it might be different. It might be one in 50 or one in 100. Yeah, in the consumer space, I, I think the odds are uh, dramatically worse. But that's I, my theory on that is only because there are so many more people entering that space. And also the consumer space, unless you're highly specialized and attacking a particular niche, tends to be winner take most of the market. So so you have to get big and you have to get big fast. With infrastructure companies or even with enterprise software companies, that's not at all how it works. You can you can build a $50, $500 million business by just attacking one type of user and one type of problem. Mm. But you need a lot of money to make that happen. The flip side of that, the, because you're more likely to be successful, you can take in more money. That is, you can go to a VC and say, I need $50 million to start up. Whereas a consumer might say you can have five hundred thousand for a Series A or something like that. 
Yeah, yeah I, it really depends. I mean, if yeah. if you're building hardware, of course, you need more money, and life mm. and hardware life cycles are a little faster, but they're not dramatically faster the way software life cycles are. Right. So this this idea of um, companies pivoting does that is that something that people in the enterprise or people in technology should be worried about? Like you buy a technology and then all of a sudden it's obsolete a few years down the pipeline. <laughs> so the way I'll say this is that you have to have your eyes open, right? If you're going to buy into a product from an early stage startup, you can't go into it expecting what that company is doing to be what they either what they continue to do or to be permanently going in the direction in which you expect it to go. So your your expect so one thing as someone who works on startups and has typically worked on enterprise software that sells in the enterprise, we've always been very clear up front to set expectations that one we understand you're a big company and you've bought our software or hardware, hmm. uh, but you one, you don't control the roadmap, we do. <laughs> and two, our aim is to be here and to be doing this you know, forever and to turn into a big company. Hmm. But existential crises might force a change. Yes. And, if, and you, by buying into this product and this company, you need to now help us be successful. <laughs> so you're going to be, but the flip side of that is you're going to be very engaged with the company. The, the startup is going to be working with you closely. Yep. They'll work with you to make the product in your shape as best they can. Absolutely. As long as it matches their long-term vision. Yep. Um, but, and, you know, and, they're, and they're very open to, to their long-term vision to some degree, um, changing, right? So, so there, you know, if you know, if you want to build a a dominating uh, management system for Docker, for instance, you still want to do that, but your product direction could take any number of paths to get there. It could take an infinity of paths to get there, and and if you're going after a certain kind of large customer and you get a few of those, those people have a direct and material influence on the roadmap. Uh, yes, that's true, and that means the product could go in a direction that suits you. Although I don't believe, in general terms, in very general terms, you've got to be careful to know that you probably don't know what's good for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> Customers are not uh, don't always have um, a strong three hundred and sixty yeah. degree division vision of what it is that they're doing. They're often often very narrowly focused. So, for example, network engineers who've only ever worked in healthcare are very different to network engineers who've only ever worked in the financial market or, say, the high-frequency trading market. And the requirements are very different for both of those markets. Now, if the product is targeted at one or the other, that's fine. You can take on niche features or specific features related, and that's going to be valuable for both parties. But if you're in the healthcare market uh, and the company wants to reach out into the financial market, your features would be less important. So you need to be thinking about the positioning of the product and where the company's going as well. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And and that's just that's the art of product management. It's the art of communicating and, and setting expectations and, and making sure that you build what's best for the company as well as what's best for the customers. I think, yeah, and I think the customer too has to start taking some responsibility. I mean, a lot of the one of the things that I've said for some time is that um, vendors try and make take on all the responsibility and say, yeah, we can do these, we can make promises and commitments with the best of intentions, but often foolishly, the customer needs to be careful what they ask for or they might get it. Uh, I, I appreciate the sentiment and that yeah. you say that, but it, in my experience, and I've been in tech for 20 years now, that it's not at all how it works and maybe never will. No. I, well, the thing is, that as, an, as a customer, like I'm a long-time customer engineer and I've always made a point of not asking for features 
unless I actually found thought very carefully about them. And I do think a lot of the times customer engineers just glibly say, you know, it'd be really great if this knob here was chrome instead of brass. And for no reason other than they happen to like chrome. That's right. Right. And it's not a, you know, I mean, that's one That's one extreme. And the other one is to think about the impact. Like the more um, chrome knobs you put on something, the easier it breaks and the more yeah. spare parts you have to have. So, yep. and I don't think a lot of customers have actually thought about uh, software in particular or software features as every time you add a feature, you also add a bug to the product or you add bug bug surface, you know, yeah. failure surfaces. Oh, I, I like I like the way you've put that bug surface. Yes, it's it's like attack surface. Every time you add additional features or complexities or, or interactions, mm. you're adding bug surface. <laughs> and and if it's a core switch, like if you have a, like a big data center network and you've got a pair of core switches, every time you increase the bug surface, the actual the blast radius is your entire data center. So you want to be careful about what you're asking for. I do. Absolutely. So, silly. One of the things that startups are doing is you've obviously got to fit in with people working in startups. And that comes down to the question of talent shortages. There's actually, well, I think, you know, I, I'm very cautious about telling people to go and work for startups. I think it's generally foolish. That's an awful punt. It's a huge punt to go and work for one. So not being a gambler, you know, that limits the amount of talent available, surely. Yeah. It, so there, I mean, there are a few things here. On absolute terms, you, you're going to, if you know, if your goal is to make money, you're, definitely going to make way more money working at a large technology company or or other company and and getting paid a big company salary and collecting stock and RSUs and and building a nest egg that way startup in general at startups that is not going to happen that'll happen once in a while and to some lucky people but there's a whole hell of a lot of luck involved and and winnings tend to accrue to people who have won before rather than to newcomers in general in my experience so there's that, and but but it is but it is a it is a different intellectual challenge, and it's a different challenge. And it's a lot of fun to build things from scratch um, versus be a part of a system that's you know already producing things, and everybody knows mm. what they're supposed to be doing, and and all you're doing is executing a, a well defined function. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there there is in fact a a talent shortage as far as as far as I can tell. At least in Silicon Valley. So, so this may or may not be true in Austin, Chicago, London, Berlin, mm. Tokyo, anywhere else. But in Silicon Valley, there's an absolute talent shortage all the time for just about everything, except maybe engineers. So there are talent shortages for certain kinds of engineers. But in general, we've been telling people for years and years and years that they should learn programming and have engineering titles. And so there are a lot of people who do that and be that. Um, there's always been a lot of salespeople because it's that's a very simple dollars in, dollars out, people in, dollars out situation. Mm. And uh, salespeople who have the mental framework to be salespeople are, mm-hmm. you know, there are always plenty of those around. Yes. Uh, everywhere else, things are very hard, especially if you're building something technical or very deeply uh, technology or engineering oriented that's sold to very technical people, which is the, the kind of thing I've always been involved in. Mm. It is virtually impossible to find product and marketing people uh, because there's there's a the number of startups that exist today vastly exceeds the supply of people who understand the business side of things by at least two orders of magnitude. Um, so you're saying there's lots of bright ideas. There is an, enough people to turn bright ideas into functional prototypes. 
Yep. There's not enough people who can take those prototypes and work out who's going to buy it and how to present that message to people. Yes. Uh, so the sorts of people who work at startups who knock on your door and say, hey, I've got a new dingle dongle and it's a great thing. What is it that tells you that the dingle dongle is going to fit for you? What's that? What's uh, the message that's going to unlock the door yeah, for the exactly. largest number of people? Yeah. yeah, and and partially that's that's because it's so cheap to, especially in software, so cheap to start companies, and money is so freely available if you have even a glimmer of a decent idea, and so much money is chasing returns, uh, at least in America and in Silicon Valley, that it's mm. it's relatively trivial to start a company and get to a prototype or an alpha or an early beta stage mm. and raise a seed round and hire a few engineers and continue from there. Things get hard when you actually have to go to market and sell things. So within the startup itself, let's say you're shoved together with like, say, two to 10 people in that critical stage of a startup. You're all going to be living in each other's pockets. You've all got your eye on the prize. Everybody's dreaming big about some you know, massive payoff. They're all going to build a, a you know, mega million dollar business. It's got to be a crucible of emotions and dreams and lots of hard edges that have to rub off against each other. And that's not necessarily a good thing for engineers. Yeah, it can be. It is challenging. It is uh, emotionally challenging uh, and it is uh, culturally challenging. So, so actually, so interestingly enough, what I found is that the engineers in that situation, the core engineers at any startup, tend to be people who know each other and have worked together before or have reasons to have a long-standing relationship. Um, and, and, they, and they get along fine. It is, it is when other people enter the mix that things get more difficult. So let me extrapolate then. You're saying I've got a bunch of engineers in the room. They've produced the first stage or the prototype of the product, ready to start bringing in some marketing people to tune up the message that will attract people with money to actually get interested in buying something. And then all of a sudden, engineers stop, can't communicate with the marketing slash productization people. Right. Or, yeah, or, or, you, or you have situations where you've got a, a technical founder and a non-technical founder. And so, and so you've, they're, they're constantly trying to bridge the gap and, and think the same way about the universe so that they're, you know, what the engineering organization is doing and how it's, it's functioning matches what the business goals are. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes it's very, very difficult because engineers classically behave in certain ways and pursue certain goals and those don't always meet the needs of hmm. uh, the business. And vice versa, business people tend to behave in certain ways and pursue certain goals which don't necessarily align with the, you know, the vision of the product. Hmm. Or the vision of what the engineers see. The, the engineers see product from, sometimes I call it like uh, – if you want to talk to the horse's head, don't pick up its tail and talk into its ass. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. you know? uh, yeah. Whereas quite often the marketing person's doing that to engineers and the engineers are turn the horse around and then pick up its tail to talk to the people in the business right. side. And, and, the, and it is a constant process, what, what mm. I think many people don't understand. And this is true at, at big companies and at startups, is that this process of making sure that we are all in general agreement about the direction in which we're traveling and the means by which we'll get there and, and the how of, of what we're going to do is a daily, maybe hourly commitment. It is a thing that is constantly needed to be 
confirmed and discussed and validated and thought about and reconfirmed mm-hmm. and rediscussed because because in the intervening period as people encounter problems and challenges uh, inevitably everyone at one point or another goes off the rails and, and but I think have things have back. changed I think things have changed more recently engineers have are less didactic they're much more flexible than they used to be um, I can remember 10 or 15 years ago it was very conventional for infrastructure engineers or, you know, in any space to sit and say, this is the right way to do it and that's the way we're going to do it and sort of throw their toys out of the cot until they and hold their breath until they got their way, right? But there's been a fairly consistent message for the last 10 years from the business to say, look, engineers, you need to get with the business. And engineers are smart. They went out and learned how to do business stuff. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it, that's as bad as it used to. I mean, that is evidenced by the fact that there are Silicon Valley startups who are very successful. Oh, yeah, with, a, with an engineering focus, right? That is something that never used oh, yeah. to happen. Oh, yeah, that's that's a fair point. So, so I mean, I, I know of a company that was 100% engineering until many years into its operation, and it is successful and profitable and has plenty of customers. Hmm. Yeah, you don't want to have a broad brush. I'm just saying that it's, it, learning business isn't hard, but it is a, uh, you know, as somebody who's going through the transition, you know, where I've had an engineering focus all my life and now in this role... I spend much more time thinking about business and marketing and positioning and stuff like that as to try and extract the little pearl out of the out of the tide. And it's not hard to learn this stuff, but it does require some focus and some energy. Yeah, and and it requires the sort of the same. It, I mean, interestingly enough, to me anyway, it's it's the same mental framework you have when you're doing engineering work, where you know you you know you know the end state you're trying to get to. And there, in, there's a best way you think to get there, but there are alternate paths, and you try the best way, and it doesn't work, and you go down the alternate paths. You know, in a startup, the the act of going to market, how are you, like how you price, how you sell to, how you sell to them, how revenue comes in the door, is it monthly, is it annual? Do you aim for big deals? Do you aim for money up front? Do you aim for money over time? Are you selling to a director level person? Are you selling to a C level person? Are you selling directly to engineers? All of these things, there there are a ton of variables involved. Mm. And you have a you have an idea about what the variables are that should go together and that you want to happen. And frequently you're just wrong. And you're gonna be wrong multiple times. And over the mm. course of going from prototype to shipping product and a business that's generating revenue, you're gonna turn over your this thesis once, twice, three times. I've never been anywhere where it was turned over less than two times in the first year. Mm. And you just throw everything out and you start again, which can be very frustrating for people yeah. at a startup. But Especially that's if you've done some great work and then you throw it away to redo it. Yeah, you know, but or, frequently that's just what has to happen. And fitting in together, what about having all these people thrown together in a room? I mean, is there emotional stuff going on? Like we, even in a company of 30 or 40 people, it, you're rubbing up against the same people day in, day out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There is, there's always some kind of emotional trauma, strife, people feeling slighted, people feeling like their ideas aren't heard, people who, who's, who's, who are nice in general but turn into assholes under stress, people who, um, who are just assholes all the time but are very good at their jobs. Yes. Uh, you get all the varieties of people, and, and I've found this is the hardest part about uh, being in, in leadership or being in management, which often happens for me, is, is that uh, typically the idea is you just hire smart people, right? And everything's going to take care of itself. But that's I, that's just not what happens. You hire a bunch of smart people and you put them into a room, and things go side can go sideways very quickly. It's it is, and and this is kind of the cultural fit bugaboo in Silicon Valley. Like cultural fit means different things to different mm-hmm. people, and frequently it's used as 
as a cover for we're just not going to hire people we don't like or we're just not going to hire people who don't look, think, and act like us. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. but the reality of cultural fit is that it is insufficient to just hire the best people you can get. You have to hire people who can actually work together, and that is, that is non-trivial to figure out. So when you go to hire, you're not only hiring based on engineering skill or specific talents, you're actually trying to judge if somebody's going to fit into a very small group of people. And that's and, why and, these and companies do this take them to dinner type thing. Yeah, exactly. And well, and you're trying to predict how how will these individuals when put together behave as a team? Hmm. How can I how can I help them behave best as a team? But not just in the normal case. And and no one cares about the best case. How are they going to behave as a team in the worst case when when we throw out six months of forget just marketing and product work? If we throw out six months of engineering work because we went down a path that is not going to work and we put a lot of effort into it and and we're and we're calling it and we're saying this is not going to work and we're going to go down a different path that's hard that's you know that's people's blood sweat and tears they've been here 14 hours a day or whatever or even yeah. or even if you're able to build a company that that works on that has a decent work life balance and people just work 40 hours a week still that's blood sweat and tears and people's mm-hmm. like invested in the thing that they've built and you're saying the thing that you built is great but it it's not going to build the business and we have to stop yeah. building that and build it's something else. It's not going to sell or it's not something yeah. that somebody wants to buy. It right. might sell, but not enough of it's going to sell to people. Right. Or we built a feature and it turns out that that's not the feature that, you know, there's an open source project that does it or somebody else has come to it. could be anything really, I guess. Right. And, and, so, and so that's the kind of thing you really have to think about and optimize for. How, are, how is this group mm-hmm. of people going to re- react to that situation? I I personally struggle with jobs in Silicon Valley because I actually can't afford to be there. The cost huh. of right, the cost of yeah. I, I do think that this idea that you have to be in Silicon Valley to do these things is going to be increasingly a challenge because I've obviously looked at working in Silicon Valley for various reasons, and the cost of housing and the cost of surviving, transport and healthcare is just unfeasibly large. Oh, I'll I'll, I'll say it outright: it is miserable. It is actually, un- unless you know, unless you have a, a big company job, or unless you've been at a su- couple of successful startups and you've got a uh, relatively large buffer, um, yeah. buffer right? Yeah. Or unless you're very, very young and you don't care, and you're you know you're willing to live with. <laughs> I mean, other, I mean, yeah, six yeah. lives with six in a bunk house. Yeah. That's right. When I yeah. when I was twenty three, I was happily. I had no problem. I would happily do that. Now mm. there's no way. Like nothing on earth would get me to have a roommate, much rather live in <laughs> live in a house with ten with ten other male software people. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yes, yeah. so, so it is. It is. It is sure. actually. I spent three through. years backpacking through various parts of the world and sleeping under the sleeping under the stars, literally. You know, yeah. with a with a a, a, a roll mat and a, and a mosquito net. And, but uh, these days, I, w- I wouldn't say you could get up the next day and start cutting code or being no, smart. No. Yeah, not at all. So, so it is. I will say that it is exceedingly challenging. Um, but, but if if you're going to do an early stage startup, it's it's impossible to not be where that startup is because because it's very hard. And and I'm not going to say it's impossible, okay? Because I know plenty of people who have done this, where they you have an early stage startup and you've got some distributed people, but in general, it's very hard to do that because yes, uh, and and it's and it's not because the technology doesn't exist, it's it's because people are are not in the habit of including those who are not present. Yeah, well, there's it's, a few. I think there's a few things there. One is 
latency of communication. So to, as a yes. networking person, obviously, right? Even right. if you're communicating over, you know, Slack or the best possible, you know, tools that you can buy, the latency of communication and the density of the information exchange is much less than face-to-face in a room across from a meeting room table. Yep. Uh, there are advantages, of course, where the time lost in face-to-face meetings is actually high. Um and the wasted effort is obviously often substantial, but as you say, not the best way to get a product off the ground where things are changing, and cr- there's a creative process happening in the background. Yeah, and yeah. when once the startup gets to a certain size, it's it's way more feasible. Also, if the startup is willing to bear the expense of bringing you in on a regular and constant basis, then it's totally feasible and worth it because I've seen that work very effectively. Yeah. Um, but but also, the, I mean, you don't have to start. You don't have to join an early stage startup. I think people for some reason neglect the the breadth of what a startup is so you know there are companies that are a few hundred people that are still startups they still have a modicum of revenue they're still trying to get to the extreme growth part of the business they're still trying to figure out how to land big deals there are plenty of startups that are relatively mature organizations Mm. That one could join, and they don't require being in in an office in Silicon Valley. They don't require, you know, sixteen hour days. They don't require um, mm. any of the any of the headaches or or the the mythology of what a startup is that you see, you know, in the news and on TV shows. There are, there are a hell of a lot of companies in that state. Yeah, um, they've got to looking for talent. Yes, they're looking for people. Usually, they're looking for specific people. Yep. The product is set. They're going to market. They found some success. Yep. You're you're coming in fairly late in the cycle, and maybe this leads us into the discussion around, you know, how what sort of money should you expect to get paid? Because, you know, taking equity is the big dream here. Um, uh-huh. yeah. You know, or the lack of it, um, and um, you can still have a, all the fun of a startup because it's a lot more freer than an established corporate where all of the funds being taken out of the business because it just has to do the same thing over and over. It's much more like a, you know, it's a lot more fun designing and building the factory than sitting and working in it every day. Yes. Um, so, so my, so my, my view on this is a little bit cynical. Um, and it's basically that you need, you need to, you need to optimize for, unless unless you have a big buffer, you need to optimize for the money you need to live and have a decent lifestyle that you expect to have, especially if you have a family. Yeah. Um, and and you should optimize that even to the detriment of equity. For instance, I, w- I will almost always negotiate for more money up front and deferred equity. So inst- so I'll take more money now and, and, and a year or two years into it, Instead of talking about a cash raise, I don't mm-hmm. want to talk about cash. At that point, I want to talk about getting equity or additional equity to the original equity grant, um, because because I wanna I wanna I don't want to be in a state of worrying about my day to day life and and in a state of like existential suffering for the fact of being at the startup if I can help it. Um, when you're at an early stage startup, you, of course, you're going to take less money because there's less money to go around. Yeah. But if you're going to like a mid or later stage startup, there's no reason you should get paid anything less than what the market rate is for what you do. So let's say this, this, so the company's mature, it's got a product, well, relatively mature, it's in the mar- got a market position and now it just needs to grow hard and fast. So it wants, usually it wants highly motivated people who quite often in the sales positions to go out there and bang on doors and close deals. And whether that's as an engineer, pre-sales engineer, post-sales engineer, or you know, supporting the marketing organization in the CTO office, 
you're saying make sure you get the cash first so you can keep yourself alive, have your cars, keep your house payments up, get the kids to school, and then yeah. look for equity to look for an equity acceleration at the second and third year. Yeah, so th- that's what I do, and mm. that's not might necessarily work for everybody, and you might not necessarily be able to get that out of your employer. That that is that is what I aim for and how I approach it. Because what I what I don't want to do, and and what I don't think is good for anybody, either the startup or the the employee, is to to be at work every day with the burden of knowing that you know mortgage payment plus childcare plus schooling plus family vacation to go see the grandparents like one of those things has to be given up that is that is a that is a setup for an unhappy working relationship which ultimately mm-hmm. translates into the work and the success of the company you can be trapped into the you feel trapped because you can't leave because you're not going to get your equity out yep and you know something's gone wrong you've come in something's in the first year or two whereas you're saying if you can get past the second or third year you're probably there for good Yep. The company's going to make it. You're going to make it. You know where you're yep. at, and it's worth yeah. doing it. And that's a part. That's a and so you're effectively prioritizing happiness. Yeah, absolutely. Which I, which I agree with, right? <laughs> <laughs> Having worked for corporate for many years, happiness is actually key. Yeah, and and again, and again, if you're if you're if you're quite young, you don't need to do that because you know happy happiness doesn't it doesn't come with all these burdens. <laughs> happiness is is a beer on Friday night. That's and right. some, some things to do in your spare time, and that's enough. Yes, at yeah. uh, when you've got a wife and daughters at school, it's a whole new ball game. It's a different thing absolutely. Um, so, what about um, there are also a number of concerns about uh, when you take equity at a startup. They there are tax burdens that kick in at different stages that a lot of people don't know about. Yes. Where when the equity vests, you're actually then, because of the way the US system in particular, it's different in different countries, but once they give you equity, you're suddenly up for a tax liability. Yeah, so um, that, that would be a, an exceedingly long discussion, but what I will say is this. It's not as simple as it appears or as anyone tells you. Either go read up on it hmm. and or consult a lawyer or financial planner because it is actually for i found very few people who seem to understand how this works and i've Mm. spent time actually reading you know how it works and how the tax system deals with it to understand it Mm. uh and and you should absolutely do that because you you could conceivably um be hit with a tax burden for something that's effectively worth nothing but you have to give the tax man money anyway hmm Yes, but the, I think so. Just to summarise it as best as I understand it, if you earn out your shares, so let's say you take you get given a, a percentage of equity in the company. It's usually very small, by the way. You need to have an expectation at like point less than point one percent. Usually, <laughs> it's very yes. difficult. It's not going to be big a big percentage because you're not the founder, right? And the investors get the lion's share. They get fifty, sixty, seventy percent, and the founders might actually get. You know, only a relatively small amount. You'd be very surprised how little they get. Also, that that amount changes over time. Each additional round of funding could conceivably lower your percentage. Yes. So as over time other investors come in um, and kick in more money, your percentage gets diluted as other people's get in because they issue more shares. Your shares may shame at the same number or they may only increase moderately or they may issue shares which are no voting power or no dividends. There's a whole bunch of things here. 
and and very nice startups and or very forward-thinking founders will reserve shares for the purpose of truing up, which is basically retain your percentage over time as an employee. Not everyone does that, but some do. So you need to ask it, but the, once your equity is actually vest, once those, if at some point during your life in the startup, usually at around the three-year stage, the, your shares in the company are worth something, <laughs> nominally, and you want to sell them on the market, say the company has gone public, as soon as those shares land in your pocket, you're up for a tax burden on that. So if you get $250,000 worth of shares, perhaps, regardless of the real value of the shares, you are now up for a 30 to 40% tax burden that has to be paid in that year. You have to find that money from somewhere. Yep. Now, who was I thinking of? There was a company the other day where the shares were vested at a certain price, like $50 a share, and they all had to pay the tax burden at that price. And then two weeks later, the shares dropped to uh, $10 as the company combusted. Yes, that happens. <laughs> so just imagine you've gone out and maybe borrowed $50,000 to pay the tax burden, and the next day the shares aren't even worth 50 grand. Yeah, don't ever do that. <laughs> so life and, is and pretty- be, and, be very, and be very careful and wary about the effectively the secondary market for shares because people will approach you if they know you work at a certain company that has a certain projected valuation and offer to give you the money to buy those shares and then split the proceeds. Um, that can go very badly for you. Okay. So those are that's a sort of a practical thing. Getting into a startup is about the personal issues. It's about willing to be see work, months of work suddenly go down the tubes as the company has to turn them, turn around and take a different direction. You've got to be able to work in a high pressure environment, especially if you get in at the early stages. So maybe it's a certain type of person who gets into the startup in the early stage. Yeah. So so I, so what I've seen anyway is that um, it tends to be people who either have a burning desire to build a thing um, or to solve a problem that they've seen and they want to be involved in the process of solving that problem. Um, or it tends to be a, a certain kind of, uh, at least in Silicon Valley, being at startups is frequently something someone does. It's it's like going from big company to big company over time. People just go from start to startup over time. So it's the co- in the course of normal life and business here. Mm. Um, so it's it's not that unusual because there are people who do nothing but work at startups and they'll work at a new startup every two years. And they'll do that for 20 years. I know plenty yeah. of people who've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in general, it's, it's usually someone that has a burning desire to solve a problem or has been recruited by someone with a burning desire to solve a problem. Mm. Uh, at least on the product and engineering side, um, and on the sales and marketing side, there it's there are all kinds of motivations, um, and and there's a, there's a whole lot of ego wrapped up in being at a startup too, right? Being a startup founder, being an early employee, being at a high flying startup that was funded by a tier one venture capital firm. There's there's a lot of just feeling good about yourself for being at a startup that goes on. <laughs> Self congratulations! I'm in a Silicon yes. Valley startup. I'm a legend. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, uh, that's called the Silicon Valley circle jerk, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> People all congratulate each other for being in Silicon Valley and how clever they are for doing these startups. And a lot of it is just because they happen to live in the right place, not because they're yeah, particularly sometimes. talented or particularly um, particularly capable. No, and well, and also the, I mean, the whole the whole system, as it were, is set up 
to to encourage people to love being at startups because you need constant fodder of humanity to produce things that of some few number of which end up generating a lot of returns for investors. Yeah, that's right. So you wanted to make a point about hype. I think what you're trying to say here is don't believe your own hype. Don't believe your own hype. Don't believe anyone's hype, especially your own. Mm. If, if you're an employee, if you're a founder, I don't know, if you're a founder, I think you, you, you're required to have hype and believe the hype um, because there's a certain uh, almost delusional quality to at least some percentage of founders. So if you have multiple founders, only one needs to be delusional. But if you have just the one founder, they're probably delusional. See, the problem with that is that you can quite often become cynical. Like, obviously, you have to go out there and be the hype and face that, you know, present the hype out there because you want to be successful. But if you actually don't believe the hype, you can actually end up in a situation where you become very cynical about, you know, the hype's all just rubbish and it's all two faced and, you know, this, it's all. Marketing yeah. noise, you know, and so you you walk so. a thin line here between not believing the hype and just being a cynical, um, twisted individual. Yeah, well, I think if you end up that way, you just you just leave the game, right, and you go back to a larger company or, or you do something else. Um, when I do think there's some value to being a little cynical, and it's it's mostly just to be able to tell the things that do and do not have value from the things that do. So I, I speak with a lot of startups since I'm consulting now, and a, a fair number of them are features that people believe are going to be products, hmm. and a fair number of them are just products but not really businesses that people believe will be businesses. And, those, and there are a fair number that are businesses but that those people believe are going to be industry changing, but they're not. They're going. To, mm. I mean, they, they make someone's life better, right? So the product makes someone's life better, and that's a constrained audience. And you you maybe squeeze some amount of cash out of that audience over time, and say you have a business that you know that that can generate low tens of millions of annual revenue. Fine, uh, but they're you know they're motivated, and the whole system set up for them to take that and to inflate it into no no no. I'm actually going to generate hundreds of millions yes. or a billion dollars, which is yeah. which is simply not going to happen as things stand. It it might happen if you decide to do other things than this one thing you're doing right now. Yeah, if you're going to be, if you want to do something 20% better or 40% better, go and talk to Dell EMC or Cisco or HPE because that's what they do. And the reason they only ever increase a product's capability by 20 to 30% in any given time frame or any given product cycle is because they want to be able to keep their profit margins high. If they gave away too much, they would not be able to have another product cycle after it. So they're very careful not to give away too much um, in their product cycles. That's why... You know, you don't see servers get 110 times faster in a release. You see Intel only produces CPUs that increase by 20% because that maximizes their profits and maximizes their product pipeline over a longer period of time. Innovation right. needs 100 times. It needs to be 1,000% better. It needs to remove 50% of the cost by using 50% less something or accelerate it the performance by a factor of 10 to 50 times, right? So what used to take three months now takes three weeks. That's an innovation. Anything less than that is you might as well just leave it to a big company. Or, I mean, so, so I won't, I don't agree with that last part. So Hmm. anything less than that, an incremental improvement is still improvement and a big company might not be willing to do it, or you might be willing to do it way before the big company is. And, And there's a market to be had there. It's just, if you're going to join a startup as an employee, you should, think openly and critically about whether what you're looking at is an incremental improvement and what the realistic value of that is versus whether what you're looking at is potentially hmm. a, a 
market shifting change because also the work involved looks quite different. If something is an incremental improvement, that's it's a relatively low effort from my perspective yeah. kind of thing to go after. Even if people don't believe it's incremental improvement, even if people are pitching it as world changing, if you if you see it as incremental improvement and you know there's a market for that, that's a totally valid business. It'll make money. It'll get bought by somebody or it'll have a decent exit. And you'll be happy. You'll make some cash and you'll have worked on something. But if something is is actually market redefining or ground changing or something or it's going to challenge a major incumbent hmm. or change the way people buy things or behave as a dramatic improvement a real innovation that's hard work that's going to be hmm. a painful miserable difficult long highly rewarding probably highly lucrative slog but yes. that is very 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 hard work because my people won't believe you so when you know when SDN came into networking or flash came into storage um, people didn't believe that you were going to get a hundred times improvement in operational performance or, you know, storage speed or whatever. And it took just hundreds of millions of dollars of salespeople out there putting sales engineers in front of customers going, look, this is the real benefits. This is the real features. Customers don't often don't want the innovation because they don't believe it's real because they're cynical. Yeah. Rightly so often too. <laughs> Sorry, I was being <laughs> cynical. <laughs> It's, it's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true more often than not, so so it's fair. Mm. All right. Well, I think we're just about coming to the end of this discussion. What we really wanted to just talk to you about is a bit about thinking about life in a startup and talk a little bit about product and marketing from the point of view of working in the startup industry, but also about how it fits into the market because that's what Anil does these days. So, Anil, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? And if you've got any closing thoughts to add to the conversation, do that at the same time. Sure. So uh, I'm best and most easily found on Twitter, um, at Anil, A-N-E-E-L. Uh, and my parting thoughts are, startups are a hell of a lot of fun, but know what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've said to people, and I, as I said, just my closing thoughts is working in a startup could be a lot of fun. It's just not for me. I know it's not for me because I'm um, advancing in years and I'm getting old and senile. Um, <laughs> and... Um, my needs are different. I don't disrespect. That's not to disrespect anybody who works in a startup. It's just um, I can't afford to be in Silicon Valley. I couldn't even move to be in the places to be working in those circles on the way the current economics work. So I don't think it's it's the right fit for me. But maybe it is for you. And if you've um, enjoyed today's show, then by all means, please come over and leave a comment on the show at the packetpushes.net website. You can find us on the Twitter is at packetpushes. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you've got some feedback to give us, you can throw it on there and we'll get back to you just as soon as we see that. We don't do so much on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you uh, enjoy also, um, if you've enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends about us. Tell them where you heard it, what the interest is and where they can find it. That helps us grow and continue to bring you these products every single week if you've got time and you're an itunes user not everybody does it would be great if you could leave a review there because that really helps us to find a new audience even today more than 50 percent of our audience comes from the apple itunes store well thanks very much for listening to this and last but not least remember that too much networking would never be enough <laughs>